0: Let's wait for my next trip. I saw Joe Wisendall for the first time in like three or four years, yes uh, last week.
1: I was I was just listening to his podcast in the car I love his podcast with my wife, and she was like, I cannot listen to, to another minute of this because he sounds so tinny and his People audio hate is so his terrible. voice. It's not his voice, it's his like he records out in the Hamptons or something and like he has like he's in a tin can and it's just it's terrible.
0: It's only Bloomberg.
1: Exactly. But but you can't think, really expect them to. Have you a you can't expect them to care about audio quality on
0: the podcast. Um, but it was good. It was good to see him. He uh, he's got a gigantic mustache. Bless him. Like a prominent, like a like people were like.
1: That 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 I feel like that's something you, asking you should, him if he's in. Uh, you should have done or. during the. I guess he couldn't do it during the pandemic because he was still on the telly then, right? <laughs> so now now he's like catching up on all the stuff that everyone else did during the pandemic.
0: I think they do a really good job. Uh, picking guests um, this w- is my pandemic stash oh you did it too <laughs>
2: It looks like a <laughs> fake mustache it, it, it looks, really it does looks false <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't that I didn't get to you uh,
1: gonna you got you know, you gotta, you gotta survive somehow man
2: when I, I did a bachelor party in Austin Texas a couple of years ago and I can't grow a facial hair but when I do it comes in like white it's like pretty embarrassing I dyed, White is great man I dotted jet black
0: wait oh. your facial hair comes in white like like
2: light. Mm. I dyed it jet black
0: mine comes in white now I'm old yeah
2: yeah
0: that's that's my age is is this the is this you know a standard Gen X podcast what does that mean what standard, does that mean yes maybe what's a standard Gen X podcast <laughs>
1: standard Gen X podcast is people who, have like, who are just like you know ooh my back <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost oh, my back no, my back, no, back honestly hurts How do you we know? do open the show <laughs> with some of
0: my ailments it's been alright so we were just reading about this enjoy technology did you see this story no okay
2: it was a Spac. When did when did it? Uh, Hang on, don't don't don't. Read. Let me just read the tweet. This tweet is gold. Um, enjoy Technologies, which went public via Spac in October, filed for bankruptcy today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, but oh wait, my God. but here's the punchline. The ce the founder of the company is uh, is Ron Johnson, the guy who bankrupted J C Penny.
2: But he was hailed oh as a God. genius at Apple. That's, it turns right. out it, was, it turns out it was actually Apple and not him. What did he do at Apple? Was he product? He, no, he, he created the, the Apple bar. Store. He created like the Apple yeah. Store. And then oh, that's right, that's
1: right. And then he left, and they brought in that woman from Burberry, Angela, whatever. Yeah, but he like, like the
0: damage that. had been done already, and then.
1: But no, this this I mean we can talk about this, but like this uh, same this idea that someone who. Had success was success at Company A. You put them into Company B, and they have lots of skill, and they will therefore be very good at Company B. That's all investors.
2: That's what all investors think.
1: It just it 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 never works out.
0: Can I explain the business model to you? Maybe you'll change your mind. For Enjoy Technology, please. Oh, please. Okay, it's better than real. Founded in 2014, Enjoy Technology sought to bring high-end retail services into customers' homes in North America and Europe. The company has over seventeen hundred employees, some of whom hand deliver iPhones and other tech gadgets, and use those deliveries to try to sell more of those companies' products. So, in other words, for some reason, you buy an iPhone, you want somebody to bring it to your house, and yeah, then because
1: they, you want them to like say show you where to swipe. <laughs> Otherwise, how would you know?
0: And, right, and then pitch you a charger. Like, I can't even <laughs> I can't even imagine who thought this was a good idea. They generated $25 million in revenue, um, but reported $50 million in operating losses in Q1 God, of this what? year. So, well, listen, you well, got to spend money to had make had money. How many,
1: how many stuff? 1,700 people. So, so wait, 1,700, 25 <laughs> yeah, million. Yeah, it's like, 20, wait, can you do the math on here. this? Can you do the math on this? Like, what's that in terms of revenue per person? What's $25 million divided by 1,700? It's low. It's, it's not good.
0: It's extremely low. <laughs> Uh, in May, Enjoy began a process to sell substantially all of its assets at the time. Its Mr- assets being... I'm not sure. Paperware? Oh my Johnson-
2: God, it's
0: $14,700. mister Johnson provided $10 <laughs> oh million God. under a secured promissory note to extend the company's runway to sell itself. So he started putting his own money in to keep it alive long enough to sell it.
2: Wait, so let me repeat this. I'm like, wait, did I miss a comma? It's $14,700 in revenue per employee.
1: You could have a profit margin of 100% and that would still be profits of like $7,000 per oh employee. Oh my
0: god. Yeah. Mr. Johnson's nearly 12 years at Apple made him a star. He oversaw the opening of 400 Apple stores, devoted half the spaces to teaching users how to use their devices at Genius Bars. Later he served as chief executive at J.C. Penney. All right, so th- so the good news is things like this are imploded. no
2: longer being funded. They're certainly no longer going public. No, but what is the pitch? Well, this so, is wait, the, the guy was, that did, was there a pipe. JP, Jc Penny.
1: Was there a pipe, or was it just like a, a spec with like eight dollars? Did he spec?
0: Oh yeah, uh, no, yeah. No. Yeah. No. no it, was it did. a SPAC it did, it did. That bought this piece of yeah, yeah. shit.
1: But, but I'm like, was there was there actual money in the spec, or did everyone pull their money out?
2: It was probably
0: like
1: it
2: was a ticker. They had no, right,
1: right, but like, was there a pipe? Was there a? They all had pipes. pipes. Not all, Buzzfeed didn't have a pipe. Really? Really? Why?
0: Why do you think? Because it wasn't worth $10 a share, so no one wanted to do that Nobody wanted to do the pipe. Oh, my God. So uh, <laughs> enjoy technology, I, I guess. Uh, why you
1: ca- I, I, lo- I love the idea that like people come to your house and sell you stuff. Is number one a service and number two technology?
0: Well, I mean, is it technology? Again? Duncan! No, it's good luck when he does that. <laughs> All right, not working. lead. <laughs> it's working.
1: All right. So, but yeah, I mean, I feel like if you go from some pissant little spec that no one's ever heard of to uh, bankruptcy, that's less of an implosion than if you if you're like BlockFi and you go from four point eight billion to zero. In Zach
2: Prince just tweeted, I can one hundred percent confirm that we aren't being sold for twenty five million dollars. Lots of market rumors out there. Interesting. The plot thickens, as they say. No, they're
1: being sold for $10 million. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Unbelievable. Has has he, like, denied things that ended up happening previously or no? No. Not to Um, my
1: knowledge. Do we understand, like, how BlockFi lost all that money? Like, were they making unsecured loans to Three Errors?
2: Here's my understanding of this. All of this started when Terra de-pegged and Luna blew up. Right. That, was, that blew a hole in three arrows. And right. three arrows, like Lebowski's wife, was borrowing money all over town. They man. owed money all over town. Man. Man. So they owed money. I don't know. There's rumors that BlockFi gave them an unsecured loan. Jackie Treehorn tricks well, I mean, objects it, if like If it was women, secured,
1: man. it would have just auto-liquidated and it would have been Zach said on
2: a podcast that they have no more exposure. Anyway, here's, I think that just the customers left. I think it's like really that simple. That the deposits on their platform left. And the collateral. There was, there was vaporized. a bank run, basically. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I don't so they never get, to their credit, uh, unlike uh Celsius and Voyager, they never gated uh withdrawals. They never stopped paying interest. I have no information, but I suspect that people were just like, I'm leaving.
1: Right. I mean, it makes sense for anyone who has quote unquote deposits in literally any cryptocurrency com- company to pull those out right now. There is no equity in keeping those deposits right. and you're like they're paying me twenty percent a year, but it can go to zero tomorrow. Like, no, I'm going to pull my money out.
0: They so, actually, they actually were raising the rates, which they, is always a sign. Which of is like, not like it, a great law yeah, The, it's the just, rates, get, the get, rates, get out now. The rates again.
2: reset every month. The rates reset every month. Sometimes are okay. higher, sometimes are lower. But why, like? Well,
0: theoretically, if they're going up, why would they go up now? Because there's more risk that they have right th- I That baffles me, because you would think that would think rates go up if there's
2: more demand for borrowing, but how is there possibly more demand for borrowing? No, there can't be. Cannot right, unwind,
0: so be. Because it's a leverage on wine, so where but would the new demand come from? But,
1: but, the, but the demand is from BlockFi itself, right? They need, they are desperate for cash, and they so they are willing to pay 20% or whatever No, it they're is, not
2: paying 20%. So. 20%. It was Celsius and Voyager. They were, they were like 8%. So it was they're So was
0: paying 8% on what, USDC? On stablecoins,
2: yeah. Yeah.
0: Which is another interesting thing. Why would Celsius be able to play 18 if... Oh, I'm... Nicole, click it up. Let's go. Dude, I don't know. The Compound and Friends. Say it. The Compound and Friends. Episode 53. There we go. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me... Michael Batnick and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Today's show is brought to you by Peak Housing REIT. A couple of weeks ago on Animal Spirits, Ben and I spoke with Joe Allis about the single family rental market. Josh, what do you know about this?
0: The single family rental market? I actually own some stocks that are single family rental REITs.
2: Okay, well, you could do better. So the Peak Group owns 1,850 homes. They're in seven markets, four states. They've got a focus. I I don't know if you call this a niche, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. You bullish on that? Sort of. We spoke about the Cowboys on, on the today's price show. Of, depends on the price of oil. <laughs> All right. So the Peak Housing Group, they've got $110 million in equity from, from LPs. You could own a piece of the real estate market without managing properties, which I've, I've learned is kind of a pain in the ass. So
0: I actually think this is a mega trend. People that are not, I don't want to say forced to rent, but people who decide to rent don't want to necessarily live in an apartment building and don't necessarily want to deal with a single um, a single operator who owns one or two houses.
2: I totally agree. I don't know what the single-family rental market is in terms of... I'm sure it's tiny at this point. It's tiny but growing very fast. Yeah. So, ba- So basically, you can rent
0: a house from a corporation. They are spreading their cost out across all of these homes and they can provide all these other services, everything from entertainment systems to... Uh, alarms to landscaping, ring. and you want to yeah. ring. So all of a sudden, you're not dealing with 80 vendors to be in a home. You're dealing with one company that's doing it all for you. I think
2: it's the future. To learn more, go to thepeak.group. dot yeah. group.
0: hey, where's
2: John? I
0: just noticed Sean's not here. What did you do to him?
2: At his cousin's wedding.
0: Oh, boy. There are a lot of cousin's weddings going on.
1: It's the 4th of July weekend. Isn't it, it is.
0: Oh, it is. All right, listen. We have a very special guest here today. Felix, we do this very professionally. Wrote, I can tell. We wrote an you intro d- for you. You don't just throw this show together. No, we really don't. All right. Felix Salmon is the chief financial correspondent at Axios and host of the Slate Money podcast. Prior to Axios... Felix was the senior editor at Fusion, a financial blogger at Reuters, and you have probably written columns for. Every I mean, yeah. I read all your like over the years. I read everything. You were writing for Portfolio.
1: Yep, um, I, I had like the OG econ blog at Portfolio. I, I had an econ blog for Nuriel Rubini. Did you go back that far? Did you really? That was that was in like 2007.
0: So you so you really came to prominence during the Great Financial Crisis very early, because you wrote about the formula that blew up the world. Which David Lee, yeah, and, So g- the give Gaussian us like the, copula the function. On that.
1: So um, basically, the way you were valuing credit derivatives was by looking at um, how they had, how defaults had behaved in the past, and how house prices had behaved in the past. And there was this wonderful thing called the Gaussian copula function that. Um, you would plug your numbers into that, and out would spit a fair value for synthetic CDS on the mortgage market. And you would say, "Great, okay, this is what the computer says; it must be true." And you'd go out, and you, you, and it was AAA rated, so you could level yourself up a million times. And you, and I'm sorry, hold on, are we going to cut the music? What, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you have, have to there cut you, that geez. so Felix
0: doesn't start rapping. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got distracted um, getting, Michael's, In I was getting Michael's of, cable. I was getting he was Michael's about cable. to say, my money don't jiggle jiggle. <laughs> I'm just telling you, I knew it was coming. It folds, so, yeah. All it right. does fold. Sorry, exactly. sorry, go
2: on.
1: Um, so, but yeah, so the the long and short of it was that the formula was deeply broken and, um, you know, it basically, it was, it was this kind of value at risk formula that told you how much these CDS could, how much these assets could, could decline 95% of the time. No one realized that like the other 5% of the time, like they would just blow up completely. And people believe the formula and that is, you know, there is not one cause of the financial crisis. There book- are many, many causes of the financial crisis, but that was in terms of the, fin- the deep financial engineering and structure of the, fin- of the financial crisis. But how the hell did you know that? Fun.
2: Are you like a mathematician? He watched Margin Call.
1: Exactly. Well, margin Call came out later, <laughs> oh, I'm but no, the, it was it was a bit like that, you know, the that kind of um, who is it? The Stanley Tucci character in Margin yeah. Call, who's just like, "Have you seen this? Is you know, five standard deviation events, and like we are not set up for this, and, and when we wake out up the in building. the morning, there's going to be this two billion dollar hole in our balance sheet." That was effectively what they were doing is they were valuing this sort of toxic waste using the
0: Gaussian copula. Um, Now, when you wrote that, when you wrote that, it made a really big splash for, I think, a couple of reasons. The first is it was more sophisticated than anything that the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times were doing about, at that point, the mortgage market. Like, they didn't have bloggers. They had really good reporters, but they didn't, I don't think they had opinion people that understood markets and, like, could write that way. So I feel like when you wrote that, it almost, like, ignited um, something that continues to this day, which is, like, very well-informed market people doing not only news but opinion for, like, ev- you know, deal book, everybody. Right. Is that how you see it?
1: Right. They're, yeah, exactly. The the people realized um, suddenly at Portfolio, we had a bunch of, like, really good reporters, and I've never claimed to be a really good reporter, but they what they didn't have was people who just broadly understood how bonds and derivatives work. And that was what everyone was asking. They were like, can you explain how yeah. a, a CDO waterfall works? You know, and I'm like, I can actually do that. So um that kind of explanation and understanding of the nitty-gritty of finance became very um popular and useful. And yeah, and and next thing you know you have Matt Levine.
0: Yeah. Well right. I was <laughs> I was gonna say there is like a, a lineage of some of the better market reporters or commentators. And I feel like it Really started in that moment, and now it's and not then, yeah, uncommon. Yeah, I
1: mean, so like Alphaville was very early on to that, yeah, birth. Cardiff, and and, and like everyone is exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah, and I'm not sure, I feel like the blog, you know, as we all know, blogs are dead now, so I don't know, there's not like the same kind of intellectual back and forth where I like I would post something about you know some obscure derivative, and then someone else would reply and then someone else reply and you'd get like I do remember that back and forth with like Steve Randy Waldman going deep into the weeds of the you know the the bond documentation and that kind of stuff or I'd be going super into the weeds about collective action clauses in sovereign debt you know contracts where is
0: that taking place is that on Twitter or is that on podcasts I feel like it's
1: it's a lot of it is gone yeah it was this brief shining moment where there was this kind of economics grad seminar going on in the Blogosphere every day, and nobody's time for that shit. It's boring. They do have time for that shit, but they just waste it all on
0: TikTok. <laughs> yes, so that's that's where that's where it's all gone. I,
1: I actually wrote a chapter of a book about about the death of the blogosphere in the two thousands, and yeah, you can. There's a bunch of different things that killed it. One was that the mainstream media started buying you know, hiring all of these bloggers and then putting more constraints and shackles on them. Uh um, well, was Twitter. Joe Wiseman famously but, said,
2: most blog yeah. posts should be tweets. But then
1: but then Twitter was the other one, right? So Twitter comes along towards the very end of the 2000s. And then it, you know, it's that much more immediate. And it does put one of the many knives in the bleeding out body of the bloggers here.
0: The blogs also, uh, myself included, all cut their comment section because if you're a solo blogger, there used to be a lot of, like, great shit going on in the comments because, totally. like, people that had nowhere else to go to put their yeah. thoughts. There, there's now, like, one comment
1: section left in the world, which is Marginal Revolution, and then everyone else yeah. is just, like, doesn't work Because anymore.
0: it's too much trouble to police. Like, I remember convincing Barry to kill his comments, and it took me, like, six months to get him over the hump. But I said, go look at the last 20 comments on the last post you wrote. If If five of them are constructive or further the conversation at all, I'll never bring this up to you again. I had already looked, so I knew. <laughs> but it, you know, it's just it, like if you're, if you're a one-man operation or a two-person operation trying to do a, even like a great blog like Calculated Risk, right? And you're trying to like put out content and then you leave a comment section. You go to sleep at night. You wake up the next morning and there's all kinds of horrendous shit on there or people saying ugly things to each other. Who wants to host that? Right. So I think that that partially helped to just kill off blogs as an interactive yeah. medium.
1: And then, and then you had the other big thing was Google Reader getting killed. And mm-hmm. then, like most, you know, those of us who were really deep in the blogosphere, we read all of our blogs Oh, right, right? R- I remember that
2: was that twenty fourteen. That that sucked. Yeah. When they killed that thing.
1: And then, yeah, right. there, was, there was no good reason for them to do it. But the minute they killed Google Reader, then that was the end of the it.
0: Right, right? There were some blogs that lost a third of their, their views overnight. What do you use now? You use something similar. I use Google News. What do you mean? To find yeah. information or to, bl- or to broadcast?
2: Whatever. No, do you your, have an what? RSS reader yeah.
0: that you use? No, but we have, an automa- we have an automated email that goes every night based on RSS. But people have to subscribe to the blog. So they can't. Right. They can't wait for an RSS feed that's never going to come. But RSS still exists. Yeah, I mean, podcasts are RSS. So we use it to populate an automatic email. So if I do three posts in a day, those three posts in their entirety will go out via email. And I th- we're doing that with all. We're doing that with yours too, by the way. I don't know. if – I guess maybe you haven't taken an active interest, but there's an email. <laughs> no, for it's your not blog. the same.
2: It's, like, it's hours later. I know it's not
0: the same. We yeah. ta- we actually could time. So we say but five so thirty. But, but
2: so you do a podcast now. What's your thoughts on podcasting versus blogging? Isn't podcasting so much better? No,
0: not no. In this, not, in this, not in this case.
2: well no, I mean, so so
1: you know, we're having a you know pull session right here, right? It's perfectly interesting, but it's not you know if I if I wanted to say actually give you a good short explanation of what I wrote in 2009 about David Lee and the Gaussian copula function. If I had a blog, I would sit down, I would probably skim the article and remind myself what the hell I wrote, sum it up pretty effectively and be a lot more accurate and clearer and useful than I was in my random blathering earlier on. Right And, you just, you can you can be a lot tighter on the blogs. You can link much more effectively on blog blogs. There's no real effective way of linking out to someone from a blog Well, charts and point. tables
2: so, belong so, in a blog posts. Yeah,
1: and, and you get charts and tables. But more to the point, blogs are a conversation, right? And they're a conversation between a lot of bloggers and they're ongoing. And
0: podcasts don't
2: That's work true. like that. There's no like, cross-pollination. There's very
1: few podcasts who are like, so and so just right. said this on one podcast. Right. I'm going to respond to them, and they respond to yeah, me. It's you so know. funny. That's true.
0: That that does happen though in other verticals outside of finance, like all of the TikTok uh, bloggers. I, I oh, know TikTok sounds, TikTok is a conversation, but they sure. are going back and forth on each other. Yeah, because shows. because
1: that's built, but it's also built into the platform, right? Yeah. There's this thing called stitching, and you know, you it's very they make it easy to interact with each other yeah. in the way that it's very hard in podcasting.
0: Yes. So, right, it would be very rare for let's say Cardiff does a show at the New Bazaar and we have a guest that disagrees with what Cardiff was saying would come on our show and say, let's do 25 minutes on why Cardiff is an idiot. Well, you also
2: can't tag someone in a podcast, right? Like they might not even know that you're talking about them unless somebody else tells them. Right. True.
0: Very true. What do you make of the state of Fintwit overall? Because I feel like Twitter had a big moment in – 2020 2021 it was like one of the few outlets people had yep to like not teenagers who mostly well actually
1: to be honest like the 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 social platform that really had its moment in 2021 was reddit yes so twitter's been on a long slow decline in terms of quality for the best part of a decade at this point yeah and i would say FinTwit with it you know it's not what it used to be. It's and once they kill um, TweetDeck for Mac on what, tomorrow? Oh, are um, they doing that? Then it's just that that's gonna be that. It's like that killing TweetDeck for Mac is a little similar to Google killing Google Reader. Why are they doing what is the stated reason of doing that? Because
0: every power user of Twitter I've ever met was a TweetDeck aficionado. Right. Why would they do why would they take something away from their most active users? That they love. I
2: have an idea. It's a terribly run company. Idiots? Maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. Exactly,
0: yeah. So so now what do people who are on Twitter all day look at? They, 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 they want
1: everyone to go to the web. There is still TweetDeck for web, but that's just, a, I mean, it's an app. You know, Web apps are terrible things. And Yeah. yeah.
2: I broke up with TweetDeck like four years ago because just my brain was melting. So I just use the website. Oh, it's not oh, great. You, but, oh, you do? Yeah. Okay.
1: But um, the point is like you can't. You can't have the website in the corner of your eye. You need to actively navigate to it and True. Yeah. You know, and people realize that when they don't actively navigate to it and they don't press the that button and load that tab, they're happier. Oh well. And, totally. You know, everyone who gets off Twitter is happier for it. Well, this check, is is just, this it. move <laughs> is a way to make everyone it's gonna m I mean it's gonna make a lot of people happier, but it's gonna massively reduce whatever engagement. Is Twitter is the good platform. for anxiety. Yes. Right.
2: It's very good for that. Yeah. But it, it rewards just the most toxic behavior, just dunking. And so,
1: and, and, and it also rewards just like, you know, cheap snarky jokes. And I love cheap snarky jokes. So I but used to also. That's not actually. What's the longest
0: stretch you've ever been off of Twitter for? Have you gone a few months?
1: Um, so I've gone a couple weeks and then the, the first three months of this year, I was pretty much entirely off it. I was on book leave, and I disappeared off to a cottage on the west coast of Ireland. And I basically just said,
2: "Yeah, I'm not going to." But be so, doing if you're that. a journalist, you really, you really can't live without it. I mean, I guess you can, but how, it's it makes your life much more difficult.
0: How do you like? How do you know what people are talking about, or like but, what the? This is the thing,
1: right? You like the people I follow on Twitter are not my readers. That you know and. It's not even the people I follow. It's the people who tweet a lot into my feed are definitely not representative of what my readers care No, they're about. the opposite.
2: Yeah. I'm they're, just saying for news purposes. So, so like,
1: Elon Musk keeps on complaining about bots, right? Because he sees a lot of bots on his platform. Because if you look at the tweets that he sees when he calls up Twitter, like, that is not remotely representative of anything. Um but he, but he, but he seems also. to he seems to think that that is representative of something. So, you know, he but yeah, you you get a very skewed view of what people care about, totally. what people are talking about. Totally. Um and and it's it's actually as a journalist if you wind up writing for what the people who are tweeting at you are saying, you are you are going to go in a very dark and un- I think direction. that's a
0: huge part of the political problems that we have is that a lot of people running for office or in office think their job is to please what they see on Twitter. Well, that's what worked for Trump. Um right, but there's one Trump. So now you have five hundred other people who are basically giving into the most rabid people in the world who are active although, Twitter users. Although, although
1: that is also built into the structure of the political system where, you know, you have this primary system. We you know, we just had a an election a couple of days ago. Um, I don't know how many of you guys voted, but like turnout was tiny because it was a primary. And the only people who vote in those primaries are like the rabid, you know, Twitter commenters. And so you wind up the people who win the primaries and who wind up eventually because someone who wins a primary is always going to win the general election. Like that person is always the person who Threw enough red meat at the rabid crowd of the people who vote in primaries. And those are not normal people.
0: Yeah. But right, they're the people that are very good at getting attention. But the vast majority of people are not represented by that at all. So um, so if Fintwood is dying, does everybody have end up with their own substack? But, wait, but it's not dying. It's just everyone's it miserable. Is. No, it's, it's dying. dying. Is it's it? Dying. Yeah. 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 It doesn't have the influence it used to have. How would, um, how would you know? Everyone knows. Because Josh is it. Yeah, he thinks, no, no, he, no. he thinks he leaves in the uh, and the place He's Park. dying. Like, if he, if he no, 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 no. He, he tweeted yesterday. I have to send a tweet like at a pre-specified interval. So I try to send something people, funny. People send
2: you what? How do you know Twitter's dying?
0: Because people send me a tweet that's like blowing up and there's like 30 likes on it. it re- like it really it, – unless something is overtly about gun control or abortion rights, there's nothing anyone can say about the markets that goes like – that goes big. I mean, really, honestly, what could anyone say? Bitcoin tweet is not going to do 7,000 likes. I remember there used to be a Twitter where things could go really big pertaining to our but subject matter. It,
1: and but even, like if, even if you get away from the metrics, you know, there used to be a Twitter where it was fun. Joe and Matt and Cardiff and me and, you know, we would get into like actually gnarly, interesting conversations yes. and you would learn shit and we would learn from each other and there would be a super interesting conversation going on there. I can't remember the last time I got into a super interesting conversation on Twitter. No, no.
0: no. That's, not what, that's, not that's not what it's for. That's not what it's for anymore. I I agree. It's turned into a vehicle with which to express It's to score your points with your disgust. constituents, right. with your
2: followers. That's it.
0: Um, do you think Elon's going to end up owning Twitter? I, I can't I'm see how I, I can't right see now.
1: how he can get out of it, to be honest. Like that okay. that contract that he signed and where he waived due diligence is a pretty cast iron contract. He has thirty three billion dollars that he needs to pony up. So he can't like claim that he doesn't have it. Right. I, what happens
2: if his stock crashes and he literally can't pay for it?
1: Well, I mean, like but that's the point, right? The his stock has already crashed yeah, yeah. and he's still worth a, you know, well over a hundred billion dollars. He owns a huge chunk of SpaceX. Like there are lots of ways that he can pay for it. So it's very unlikely that he's going to wind up where his net worth is less than thirty three billion and he literally can't. What if
0: well, all right, here's a scenario. He makes it very clear that he's willing to be in court for three years over this. Um and then the Twitter board decides Yes, the fiduciary responsibility we have is to is to get that dollar figure, that offer. However, uh, that might not be in our shareholders' best interest to have this drag on for three years. Maybe we're better off rescinding, you know, the deal or whatever the legal term is, and making a go of it ourselves. Is that so, possible?
1: Um, so okay, so here's my um, here's my my theory is that the. Market value of Twitter, absent an Elon bid, oh, is, the market, is, the ma- is the market is the is the market value of um, Snapchat.
2: I was about to say, what's Snap? I'm Sna- looking.
1: W- what is the share price of Snap? Dude, looking, Snap I'm has more users.
2: Snap Snap is <laughs> but, a bigger company, but, but there
1: is this weird. If you look, if you look pre Elon bid, yeah. Twitter and Snap traded at exactly the same price. Snap, for, for okay, me. Snap's
2: 20 billion. And no, what's no, no, his right
1: actual share price?
2: Oh, the share price is 13. Who cares 13. about the share price? No, no, this is what I'm saying. Okay. The
1: share price of Twitter and the share price of Snap always used to be exactly the same. And now- oh, the, you, you son of sh- a bitch. Holy shit. You <laughs> son
0: of a bitch, <laughs> You're he's right. right. <laughs> Wait, when was the break? Uh, when the Elon <laughs> made his <bid>. shit. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. And so, like, and Facebook, e- and Facebook, since then has been cut in half. That's actually very right. funny. And so, and so,
1: oh um, my god,
2: Felix is super right. Look at this. <laughs>
1: yeah. So what you get is um, that the Twitter board is basically saying, if this bit evaporates, we're worth call it thirteen dollars a share. Oh, so they, you know, it, so if Elon drags it out into court, they will maybe agree to a settlement where they will let. Elon walk away, but that settlement will not be $1 billion. That settlement will be, you know, yeah, twenty It's not a slap yeah, on the wrist. 15, it's 20 billion. Billion. It will be a large amount of money that Elon needs to pay to get out of this deal. Don't think it also
2: might depend on market conditions. If we're in the toilet six months from now and Twitter is even lower than it would be otherwise, they're going to fight for that $33. Basically,
1: basically what Elon, you know, Elon always has the option to start a sale process before he even buys it, right? Try oh. and work out, like, who the hell might possibly want Twitter. Um, oh. Work, work oh, out and like lose, it, lose how, eight billion. Yeah, in the process. exactly. But, you know, buy it for forty-four billion, sell it for thirty billion, lose fourteen billion, and yeah. maybe that's the
0: cheapest out that he has. Or keep a piece of the equity. Right. We'll sell you ninety percent of Twitter. I'm keeping ten. I'm going to take or a whatever. loss. So he has. So he who's, has he gonna, also, who's
2: he going to foist it on?
0: But it's
1: a good question because you know Lena Khan's at the FTC. She's not going to allow any of the tech companies to buy it. Mm. Um, and quite rightly so. So it's not obvious who else Okay, Is Disney it. desperate enough? And for enough?
0: national security reasons, they're not going to let TikTok buy it. They're not going to let, I don't think, um, they're not going to have another Rupert, Rupert Murdoch come from overseas and own that asset, I think. Like I think there would be a political battle. Oh, about.
2: Waystar Royko is a natural. Buyer. Waystar
0: Royco should totally
1: <laughs> buy TikTok. Yeah. I mean buy Twitter. That would be that would be glorious. Yeah. I <laughs> think like
2: the worst,
0: but isn't that like the worst potential outcome is some maniac manages to buy it just because they're a steel magnate in some third world country?
1: No, no, no. That is the base case scenario right now, because Elon Musk is that maniac.
0: Okay. So he's a maniac who resides here. Yeah. But okay. Uh, do you think that he was
1: was born in South Africa? Remember he's not actually, you know, I mean, he became an American citizen, but he's like me, he's an immigrant.
0: Do you think that he really wants to take that platform and actually spend time on it? Or do you think he could be the kind of buyer who just basically lets people do whatever they want?
1: So, um, this is interesting. Okay. We're recording this on June 30. You guys have the, the things up. It's now, I think nine days since he last tweeted. Is that oh, true? Oh, wow. Um, Elon Musk has gone over a week without tweeting, hmm. which is unprecedented. No one can remember the last time this happened. He loves it. Um, he reached 100 million Twitter followers and didn't <laughs> say a thing. This
2: guy. <laughs> Here's his last tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this,
1: I mean, he's For he, he's, he's, like, so those listening, he's anymore. at a gas station. He's, a, he's at a
2: 7-Eleven gas station and the price of gas is 7-Eleven. That's the tweet maybe they can't do it any
1: better than that. And and he's like that is the best tweet I will ever do and I will just like peace you out. Know I'm gonna it. You know I'm going to retweet Scott.
2: You know I'm going to retweet Scott. 69,000. 69. 69 the of star, course. The stars are aligning you did. Yeah,
1: you know you know someone at Reddit <laughs> orchestrated that but, one.
2: I think the Tesla share price had also hit at 711 was part of a joke. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think that's why he was oh,
0: huh, this guy. Maybe I, maybe I maybe I do need to come back. So but so yeah, so I, why like, is he silent right why now? Why is he
1: silent? This is a very good question. But just but but in the days before he went silent and he was like easing up on the tweeting in in the days of, uh, up to it, um, there was this big public letter from the employees of SpaceX saying, "Can you please shut the f- up on That's Twitter because true. you are really not doing us any service uh, service here?" And he wound up firing half of the people who put the letter together, but kind of sounds like he was listening to them.
0: Yeah, you know. Well, they were basically saying like you're demoralizing the the workforce. Exactly. So if you really love SpaceX, then how spending about all that how time about being Twitter a Twitter definitely.
2: employee right now? I mean, miserable. Uh, I mean,
1: I, I mean, on the one hand, you can probably just phone it in, right? Like, you know, unless you're the head of product who got fired.
2: That's true. Your your boss probably doesn't give a shit at this point. It's that's
0: got to be t- that's a tough situation. But
1: but Elon has said he's going to fire people before he starts hiring again, and he'll only hire hire again if he can get it growing. That's again, good and, for morale, and no one. Has any real reason to believe that he can start growing it? Um, You know, maybe the reason he's tweeted is because he's lost internet access because he's hanging out with Jack Dorsey in Costa Rica, you know. Has
2: any company done less with more than Twitter?
1: Well,
0: that's a good question.
1: So the the wonderful Mark Zuckerberg quote, and like literally Mark Zuckerberg is one of the least quotable people on the planet. You call him the clown clown car? He said that they drove a clown car into a gold mine. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he said about
0: Twitter. Yeah. Okay. That's actually pretty good. Which is a great quote. Yeah. Um, That applies to so many things nowadays. Mark is so funny. Yeah. Oh, that Mark. He's such a cut up. Um, Hard pivot. You wrote an article after the meme stock craziness, and it's become a 19,000 word essay that's going to go in a book. And it's about the different generations and how they invest, right? Gen X to Boomer.
1: Well I mean start yes basically starting with with the boomers um and like I actually owe you a lot of credit for this one because you um I helped celsius coin me um like understand how incredibly difficult it was for boomers to invest in the market you yeah. know like we like Genex is like myself um I remember having a, a, on Twitter actually a, a really wonderful sort of um, one of those useful conversations where you actually understand why you're talking past each other and you go, oh, no, I understand what you're saying. Like, we were having this conversation about whether journalists should own stocks. And I was saying, you know, because I was on some ethical high horse or something, I was saying, like, journalists shouldn't own stocks. And this other guy was saying, of course you should own stocks because you need to, you know, provide for your retirement. And, Wait, and you this- mean
2: individual stocks? So or- this
1: is why we where we were talking past each other, oh. right? Was that for me, like... Owning stocks means, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll be, you know, I'll own index funds, I'll own a, some some kind of like robo algorithm thing that invests in the stock market, but I never know which stocks I own, or you know, there's no way that that can really influence my yeah, yeah. My you, have in, you have
0: an index, you're not like yeah, rooting exactly. for one stock over another.
1: Um, but this guy on Twitter I was talking to, like, it, it kind of ba- barely occurred to him that that was even possible. You know, that there is an entire generation of boomers who, like, they think of ETFs as this like newfangled thing, and index funds as, as this newfangled thing, and they're like, because normally, because what investing is, is you try and work out which stocks to buy, and you know which ones you own, and you follow them, and you try and yes. hold them when hold them when they're going up, and sell General them when they go down, and.
0: And, and, you know, you As walk personified around the, by Peter Lynch, Jim Cramer, yeah. like that generation. You walk around the, the
1: golf course, like with like background <laughs> knowledge in your head of which stocks you're long at any given time. Yeah, yeah, and like, who the f- has time for that? But, but this is this is what investing was, mm-hmm. yes. you know, and and they that was like a very difficult, complex thing, which you needed to you know, have a bunch of time and money to be able to do. Then the passive revolution happens. All of the Gen Xs pile into index funds because it's so much easier and it outperforms, so obviously. yeah. Um, But then, you know, you get the sort of the the Great Recession, the millennials graduating into – no a shitty, yeah. you know, world of no jobs and no money. Um, this kind of like general feeling of of nothing is ever going to work for me and I don't have any savings anyway. And so like, you know, maybe someone can talk to me about index funds, but it doesn't matter because I don't have any money. And that breeds that and like the zero interest rate policy winds up breeding a sort of yolo attitude to the markets yeah. where you just want to take massive gambles and right. and that then ultimately manifests itself in crypto in meme stocks and all the rest of it and it's um, and it's a a whole new way of thinking about investing it's just like where where can i like where am I going to yolo my? Where am I how, like could I 10x, how could I ten x?
0: How could I ten x my money? Yeah, ten
1: x is nothing. Where can I a hundred x? Where can I like two hundred x? You know, and that's yeah, and it's and and it's um, it it brings all of the boomers and the gen Xs out in hives. We're like, why you can't do that? You know, you you will wind up losing all of your money, and they're like, well, I don't have any money to lose. So what difference does it make?
0: And then uh, and then a few of them made spectacular amounts of money, sure. which were the examples that their peers would point to and say, what do you mean this doesn't work? This guy's in a private plane and he just bought the stadium naming rights for two teams. And then you like, get
2: stimulus checks.
0: Right. And then all of yeah. a sudden you give people money.
1: But the, but the point about the st- stimulus checks, right, is that they're big enough that if you YOLO them into something that 100X is, then you can make real money. But they're too small to actually be a retirement fund in and of themselves, mm. no matter how successfully you invest in them.
0: I had a I had a call set up by... A friend of mine, I had a call with a guy last week, just like a hello, he's building something. He parlayed 30 grand into 8 million between 2020 and 2022. I don't know how much of it he kept, but he is now building an investing app for his generation of investors. So this is a guy that went like 30 <laughs> turned into 90, 90 turned into 180, like probably nine or 10 trades in a row that just worked, worked, worked. Some of it crypto, some of it options, just worked, worked. So he's one of the and ones. Now, and now
1: he's like, anyone. If I can do it, anyone yeah, can well, do so it. So I'm going to build an app to. So he's going to build an app where Great. he's going to build awesome. an
0: app where everybody. It's like a social network, but then it's connected to your actual real trading, and you could follow other traders. And I'm like, like how many times
1: has this has this no, app been built?
0: So I was, well, was going to say like no. Nobody is going to be able to replicate what you just did. So you're going to end up having people that have others follow their trades until they lose money, and then they're going to ghost. So like, it's not going to be a million people worth but following. I feel, I
1: feel like this app already exists in like 18 different 18 iterations. different yes, there's versions. A,
0: there's a bunch. So, uh, no, but this is, back, bunch. this is the one that's going to bring accountability to the world. Anyway, but that I get that mentality if that's where you're coming from. Like if that, if you just did that, you believe it's possible because it is possible because you just did it. So, that's, I mean, it's a mindset.
1: Right, it's, and it's the same mindset where you think that, like, you know, if Ron Johnson can do amazing <laughs> things at Apple, then he can do amazing things at whatever any other company At some whatever, point, at some point
2: everybody gives in. Like, it's like, all right, I've seen, like, this ninth asshole that I know who's getting rich. Like, I, I got to try. Yeah. There's only so much you could see of that before you're like, I got
0: I to gotta try. And in the pandemic, it's all you saw. There was nothing else to watch. Or there was, The only thing to watch was... People your age, if you were like 25, making like 10, 20, 30x in crypto. Felix, yeah, and, and
1: actually, I, I to be fair, like I did see a bunch of Gen Xs doing this. I, I have this one story about this 13-year-old I know who had like a hedge fund. And he was like, he went around to all of his parents' <laughs> friends and said, like, give me money. And his parents' friends, yeah. you know, his parents were like, here's $20. I'm going to open a Robinhood account for you. Go have fun. And then he's, he's like, would, no, twenty million. Bitch. Uh, and, and then and then he goes up to his parents' friends, and they're like, "Oh, I'll I'll throw in some money. How much do you want?" He's like, "Minimum is a dollars <laughs> And <laughs> his parents are like, "Why are you quickly. giving this thirteen-year-old a thousand dollars quarterly? He,
2: quarterly liquidity." He didn't.
1: So the the, the wonderful <laughs> thing is, he didn't even have any, a spreadsheet or any way to sort of work out like who he owed what to. Yeah. It, you know,
0: yeah, he has to calculate time weighted uh, returns exactly. for uh, thirty different investors. In, yeah.
2: in uh, June two thousand twenty, I was in my office and my plumber walked in. Naturally, he asked me what I was trading, and he goes, "He goes, oh, you do this." He took out his phone, whole list of uh, you name it, Zoom, GameStop, whatever, whatever. It was it was everywhere. It was but ubiquitous.
0: he was cr- but he was crushing it also. Oh
2: my god! Yeah, he, he was.
0: up. I mean, he was up a ton, obviously. But he wasn't launching a hedge fund. He's like, I'm an idiot. I, but look how much money I haven't. I, made.
2: I haven't heard. I'm not going to say he didn't launch a hedge fund. It's
0: possible. Okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, very, it's possible. It's very possible. What's this chart with the red and blue that we have? here? Oh,
2: put that. We did this is sort of a weird pivot, but we, in the doc you were talking about like uh, media, blah blah blah. So I overlaid the VIX and my page views and. <laughs> <laughs> This this incentives pretty, pretty ince- incentives drive everything, and this is why I woke up the other day. My wife watches Good Morning America, and it was like the mall bombed. We've got migrant workers dead in the truck. We've got the uh, the attack on the Capitol. We've got Walmart sued by by the, by the FTC. We've got the missing man. It was just one after another. And why? Because higher the vix, higher the clicks. If it bleeds, it leads. It's just that that's it. That's the game. That is the game. This next J- Duncan, throw up that table. So I was like, all so, right, that looks pretty close, but let me like try and quantify it. So I broke down my average page views by VIX regime. Under twenty five is a pretty pretty placid market. My this pa- is
0: nuts. <laughs> Wait, let's. So for the people that are listening, not looking. So basically, what this is saying is when the VIX is under twenty five, which is like a normal normal market, market. Um, your page views like 5,000 are 000. this is monthly, daily. Da- excuse me, not to break, not to break. <laughs> this <laughs> is daily page views are about five thousand. Vix twenty five to thirty five. You are over six thousand. The really big jump, though. Vix north of
2: forty five. Page used to go from five thousand to almost fourteen. Right. So that's what it is. People want people that put out content. They don't want the world to burn, but that's when they do better. And they oh, will accentuate you know, the I mean, aspects you know of the yeah, world. You
1: know, I, I know this. Like you know, I'm the guy who made my entire career because there was a gr- global financial crisis, and I could talk Wait, about Felix
2: it. Felix wants your investment account to go to zero.
1: <laughs> I totally do. Um, but yeah. So, this is the thing, right? Is that, yeah, when, when the VIX are when there's market volatility, especially when markets are going down a lot or when you have like some very weird thing like GameStop where markets are going up a lot, people, you know, it, it breaks through the business pages into general consciousness. Becomes pop culture. And then people are like, oh, I should care about this right now. Of course, yeah. that right now is always exactly the wrong time to care about it, right? Yeah. That's, that is actually exactly the time when you should trick you know, just put on your earmuffs and your bl- blindfold. There's like very few iron nothing. rules
2: in finance. That's one of them.
1: Right. Um, but that's when, you know, that's when people are like, market, what's a market? And they wind up on your, on your blog.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, civilians who would never read a financial blog or in search of information. Who stocks, what's this? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and it's,
1: and so, yeah, you, but th- so you get the page views of, of the people who suddenly care at
0: exactly the wrong time. We saw that on YouTube, right? Uh, Duncan, the videos went crazy when uh, VIX definitely. was,
2: yeah, right. Actually, let's talk, Duncan, throw this shot pres- at That's why when you tell pres- me
0: about our traffic, I want to start VIX adjusting you. Okay. Uh, is, will that be okay with <laughs> that? I want to start adjusting you for volatility. So
2: I, I made this like, I'll, I'll give this a shot. You go up, I'm smart. I'm a genius. And it's like, I should have used leverage. Market starts to roll a little bit. Hey, this is getting harder. Market's down more. Hey, this is weird. It'll come back. What the hell? Oh, and I think I kind of think we're like at the O oh part of the cycle, where we're past like the denial. And we're more at the acceptance. Where it's just I like- I think we're at what the heck. You think so? Yeah. You think we're higher? Well, wait, stocks or crypto or just, what? Just general. Just general. Gen- general. I think now, like it really occurred to be like, F- like, oh, we're in a like we're in a bear market. Oh, you.
1: But you. So okay, so I have a. I have a interesting theory about this because again if you if you talk to the people who read barons and play golf um they they will or their financial advisors yeah will tell you that there is a kind of um a natural tendency to buy high and sell low of course and Josh, being a financial advisor, is like, of course, this is this is what people do. But but I feel like financial, like you know, how we were saying that you shouldn't consider the people you see on Twitter as being representative. I honestly think that financial advisors shouldn't consider their clients to be representative. Mm, That's interesting, and that this tendency might be true for clients of financial advisors, but I think it's less and less true broadly.
2: It's it's a tiny, it's it's that that fear is overblown. Like I can just tell you from experience, we do not have tons of clients that are interested in buying low and selling high. I know nobody wants to do that, but- it's very few people. No, no, but,
1: no, but, no, what I'm saying is the opposite thing, where like when the market falls, people are like shit and want to panic and sell.
0: Oh, you think they do? Uh, no, I'm saying they, I, no, like. You're saying so, the kind of person that has a financial advisor is that kind of person. But that's well, not one, everybody. One
1: of the reasons you get a financial advisor is precisely because you're self aware enough to know that you will panic at the wrong time and you want someone to hold your hand and say, just like, you so know. Of
0: million dollar households in America, 28% are self directed. So two thirds are working with somebody. In some cases, that's only quasi getting advice. It might just be a broker. But they it's, call also, an order it's also to. it's
2: also a money thing. But if you if you are prone to do the wrong things and you have you know forty thousand dollars, it's not really going to hurt your future that much. If you've got a million bucks, like it matters. There's real stakes there. Yeah, I think I think like,
1: I, I well, I guess what I'm saying is that this. Um, this like behavioral drag that people love to talk about that people, you know, always do the wrong thing at the wrong time, and you're nearly always better off doing nothing. Um, I mean, that's true, you nearly are, you really are nearly always better off doing nothing. But I think what we saw, especially in March 2020, was that the anticipated sort of selling of people it never happened. It, happened. it never happened I, I we had lunch we had examples the of the opposite
0: happened. yeah because uh, I called I called my partner Chris and I'm like how bad is it? Like, are people freaking out? People or, are adding. He's yeah. like, no, you don't understand. People are calling in, trying to put money in. Exactly. I
2: actually, saw. So, okay. So, so I so, said
0: complacency.
2: <laughs> Josh said we're not, we're not, we're not at the bottom yet. I think that chart, tell them no. That <laughs> chart that Dalbar shows the average investor underperforming inflation is total bullshit. It's been debunked a like, million times. Too. Like the average investor is really, really not even close to that bad. Not even close.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you're right about that. But for the subset of people that very much, are prone to thinking they're a genius at the top and wanting to, you know, why didn't we own more of blank? And then at the bottom, like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm living through this. Get me out for that. However, whatever percentage we think that is, that's real. It's people with a lot of money. But by the way, it's oh, more- I, do,
1: I do think it's also I, I also do think it's true in crypto that one of the reasons that the crypto route is so bad right now is because people just weren't happy being long they needed to be levered long it's all leverage. crazy to me the amount of leverage like the reason why there were high interest rates in the crypto market the reason why all of these people were offering eight percent on on stable coins was because there was just this huge demand, demand yes. for leverage for leverage and you're like this is insane like you know you're 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 buying something which you expect to go up a hundred times because crypto is going to eat the world or something, something, whatever your thesis is. And that's not good enough for you. You need,
0: you need to add a whole bunch of leverage. It it. It makes
2: sense to add leverage on an asset that doesn't move like treasury bills, for example. Right. But to add leverage on a 30, 50 volatile asset, whatever it is. Well, I
0: asked you that question. I, I said, why isn't the most volatile asset class on earth good enough? One to one. Why does it have to be 20 to one? Why? Why, what
2: is the need for that? I only use five times leverage. So You're only five. Me. So, but what's <laughs> interesting about this blob, it's institutional leverage being unwound because 100%. I've, I've yeah, thrown this chart hour, up a bunch. Goes, yeah. This chart shows the number of addresses with more than one Bitcoin. It's at an all time high. It's not, people are, the average Bitcoin investor is not panicking. It's institutional leverage being unwound. Right. Which is madness. How come, like, and,
1: what, and one, of, one of my favorite charts that shows that is the, um, discount to net
2: uh, gbtc
1: yeah the gdp yeah. the gbtc yeah. discount to to um net. what is it Ask now value like no it's 30 yeah oh. by
2: the way they got rejected last night they
1: got well they got rejected so it's presumably even bigger now because everyone like but the but that discount you know it's a classic uh, it's a classic case of you know trying to find the safe arbitrage and then levering up and then you're like whoops it's moved against me
0: why is that discount so big? It makes no sense to me. Because because there's a bunch
1: of forced selling, because right now everything needs to get liquidated.
0: But it's been at a discount for a, almost a year now. I would also well, well, to- why was it why did it used to be at a premium? That's the even weirder thing. Well, I can give you an answer. I don't know if it's true, but the reasonable answer is it's the only way people with an IRA, for example, can own Bitcoin by buying that vehicle.
2: You can't buy changed? crypto in an IRA. What changed for it to sell? it? Well, in well more case?
0: more comfort level with things like Coinbase and and other brokerages. That's what changed.
2: So they're still in the SEC as one does.
0: Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, I don't I don't know um, if that normally. Turns but yeah, out.
2: but also like GBTC
1: is uh, this batshit product, right? They're charging two percent a year to sit on your bitcoins for you, and you don't even have bitcoins. You don't, you know, you can't use
0: the bitcoins to buy anything.
1: You can't, well, you can't send do that. The you can't do that
0: anyway. <laughs> I don't know what you would use a bitcoin for in real life anyway. I, I actually bought
1: a bottle of whiskey with Bitcoin once. What was it like? What was the, what was the process like? Um, easy peasy. Actually, surprisingly easy. It yeah, was. there was uh, my. Can, can I can I plug Fort Hamilton Rye whiskey on this show? It's Do of it. Course. Very very good whiskey made in Industry City, Brooklyn, and um, and I was like, I need to buy some Fort Hamilton Rye, and I have this Coinbase account with some stupidly tiny number of bitcoins in it fraction of bitcoins in it that was lying around for no reason and we this, call them satoshis and this um wine shop in brooklyn was like we accept bitcoin so i go on to the thing and it, it, it just like connected to my coinbase account and some however many satoshis like pinged over next thing i know i get a package in the mail with a bottle of whiskey i was like there you go
0: and And then your bank account was emptied overnight.
1: And then, you know, (laughs) by somebody from South Korea. um, But the fact is that I
0: should have paid capital gains tax on that. And I didn't. So that's the other thing is... Straight to jail. So so that Wait, so that's the other thing. I asked Michael, I really didn't understand this. I know he follows this stuff more closely than I do. I didn't understand how elemental the stable coins were to the asset class, to the ecosystem. And it turns out I mean, well, I'm an idiot, but it turns out, of course, they're elemental because nobody goes to cash. Well, it's, that is cash; it's digital dollars. No, but nobody goes to cash. It's not cash. like so much. Yeah, no, the for, on
1: ramps and the off ramps right. are just way right. too horrible. No, but also yeah. there's
0: tax ramifications of going to cash.
1: No, but there's tax ramifications of going to stablecoins too.
2: Hey, hey is hey. there? Yes, Felix. Yes, who said?
1: <laughs> we, we have we have winking. No, the law is that the minute you. Go to stable coins.
0: Yeah,
2: that's a capital gain. That's a capital, capital gain. You, you made need to pay fine, capital gains tax, tax on But that.
0: now you're doing that at a brokerage that's based in Singapore. Does that apply? Yes, you're a US person wherever okay. your brokerage is. All right, now, you can't easily, though, go to cash cash, which is why nobody does. Right. Because there is no cash in that ecosystem.
2: Right, you would have to take the money off of the platform. So yeah. how stupid is this? Which part?
0: That the government wouldn't make cash part of this crypto ecosystem. How is that a government thing? wouldn't it be smarter of them to do that? Like, where is this digital dollar? Because wouldn't that replace every stablecoin on the first day?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, a a CBDC would kill every stablecoin coin. What would you need one for? You wouldn't need, yeah. If if it was, like, there are different versions of CBDCs, um, but if it was one that lived on the blockchain and was easily interoperable with the existing crypto world, then it would replace the stablecoins. But, like, the Fed... Is not playing that game. The, pl- the Fed is not like looking at Circle and Tether and saying we want in on that game. Yeah, you know they they have much bigger macroprudential worries, and what they actually worry about is that would kill money, banks. markets. No banks, banks. The, yeah. So, um, if I can, if you could bank directly with I the can, Fed, if via I can just digital own dollar. digital dollars in my digital wallet and use those to transact, I have no need for a bank account
0: anymore. For their, for their storage of the money. You still need a bank for, for loans. Right. But, like in, but all bank deposits yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. start becoming like,
1: why do I need to go to J P Morgan Chase to put my money with them? Which is, remember, basically, uh, you know, for in nearly all cases, an interest-free perpetual loan from me to them and they use that incredibly low cost of funds to shore up their balance sheet and to do, do, do all, all of, the of their, their fractional yeah. reserve Well, they banking. pay you
2: 70 basis points.
1: But but the minute that you don't – the mi- like people don't make a profit on their checking accounts. The minute that everyone pulls their deposits out of – that the high street bank and just keeps it in stablecoins because it's so much easier that way in a, in a central bank digital com- currency. Like the entire financial system of the United States, like
0: there is that is a systemic risk. So when they say they're studying creating a digital dollar, does that well, why mean can't they're...
2: banks own digital dollars? Why can't you just so keep one there?
0: of the one
1: of the options that they're studying is the if you is the basically. Stable coins would be issued by banks rather than by the Fed. Mm. And that you would need to sort of go via a bank in order, precisely to avoid that kind of Does this not apocalypse. seem
2: inevitable to you guys? No. You do not think it's inevitable? No.
0: No. In fact, we keep losing countries that are willing to let this shit go on. China, China just blanket, no, we don't have this. Well, no, they do have a CBDC. No, no, no. But they just are not allowing... Any growth or development whatsoever of any coins, protocols, trading, so so, And this
1: is the point, right? The ECNY is – What is that? The the, the central bank – the the CBDC in China, basically, um, is a very powerful tool of surveillance by the Chinese Communist Party. But it's not. In any way, shape, or form, based on the blockchain, it's not something that you can convert easily from Bitcoin to EC&Y and back. It doesn't solve your on-ramp offer problem by design. They don't want to make that easy. They they are, they basically tried very hard to ban crypto in China because, you know, it's one of those things, a bit like ant financial or whatever, where they're like, no, this is this is not good for society as a whole. Just because it's creating a few billionaires doesn't make it a good thing.
0: What's the country in Latin America that's uh? that said that Bitcoin was a currency? El Salvador. El Salvador. Right. So they're going to have a big IMF loan package come due. They're not going to obviously be able to pay it. It's going to be a financial crisis. Um, that'll probably set back the idea that there's going to be this mass adoption by countries. There was,
1: there was no, of, yeah, exactly. So the- That's this year that's This guy, happen. Bukele, the president of, El Salvador the hipster dictator he calls himself he calls himself yeah. the hipster dictator yeah um
0: <laughs> uh, Very chic
1: you know uh that he you know he is basically like the Michael Saylor of heads of state you know like he's like i'm just every time bitcoin goes down he's like i'm buying the dip and he goes down he's like i'm buying the dip um and it's working out about as well for him as you would expect. All right, Michael
2: Saylor's dip purchases are getting much smaller these days. He bought one <laughs> for ten. He bought the dip. He paid ten million dollars. He's like dropping like five hundred like, million. Well, he's
0: like swiping his credit card at this point. <laughs> uh, I want to do some art stuff with you, Felix, because uh, you're you're somebody that actually knows art, and Michael and I are not. But the art world, I feel like, has never been more, t- or maybe it has, but maybe never more obviously. The art world has never been as caught up. With trends on Wall Street and crypto and uh, as it feels like it is now, um, and part of that is just because we have five trillion dollars of excess money supply uh, running around these ecosystems. Um, what has all of this easy money and digital money and uh, the culture going on in Miami like what is this all done uh, to the art world or vice for, or even the view the other way around like how much is the art world feeding on this? Uh, on purpose? Like, what do you see happening there? So, yeah, there's a lot of different art worlds. Miami
1: is an art world. Yeah. Um, The reason, one of the main reasons that Miami is an art world is because it has this big annual art fair called Art Basel Miami Beach. Right. The first thing you need to know about ABMB is that it's the baby brother art fair of Art Basel, which happens, just happened like last week in Basel in Switzerland. Right. And the parties and the celebrities and the nfts and the crypto and the all the dumb shit that happens in miami you don't see any of that in basel yeah. right the the, the the grown-ups who are buying and selling like real art in basel like this the hype cycle hasn't made it to switzerland it's made it to miami because miami is a Entire city based on nothing but hype. The city is going to be underwater in twenty years. All they can do is party and try and forget that. Fire, Felix.
2: So, (laughs) (laughs) Miami's bullshit. Well, no,
0: it is. No, it it is. (laughs) half the city was built by cocaine, and now they're rebuilding everything, and it's all being built with crypto money.
1: Have you um, listened to Francis Suarez talk, the mayor of Miami? (laughs) Yeah, like the. It's he's a bro. He you know he makes. Eric Adams seem like, really considered and intelligent. Yeah. yeah. There's, it's, there's no... makes Eric
0: Adams sound like Marcus Aurelius. (laughs)
1: There is, there is very little substance in Miami, but Miami is very good at hype. And there is definitely a small sliver of the art world um, that loves hype, you know, that is active on Reddit, that YOLOs into NFTs, that... Um, speculates on, like, Anna Wayant or Amarako Boafo or whoever the hot artist of the minute is. Um, There's this uh, guy in L.A. called Stefan Simkiewicz who's, you know, famous for, like, speculating on art and buying art for profit and buying low, selling high and all of this kind of stuff, right? That is uh, part of the art world that happens by necessity much more in public compared to the quiet kind of big deals that are done privately and no one really talks about and what happens in museums but eventually it does wind up in museums so the brooklyn museum just had a show of cause who's just like a pure hype artist right yeah um and street style yeah and and there are you know and we just had a big scandal in Orlando, which is basically like Miami on steroids, uh, of um, the FBI raiding a show of fake Basquiat's that was on at the Orlando m- Museum, and they just like confiscated all of them. And they were like, come on, guys, don't be. Don't, what, Wait, Basquiat's
0: are you- aren't for sale in Orlando? I can't believe it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah,
1: the, like the, there's a bunch of really dumb shit happening. In the- well, there's always a bunch of really dumb shit.
0: So doesn't it always the- coincide, though, with a stock market bubble? And now in this case, a crypto bubble? like the art the art world seems to rise and fall with uh people having just incredible gains in speculative assets at least in my limited life experience i don't know how far back that goes
1: it's it's a super interesting question because the art world still seems pretty healthy um even given all of the carnage in tech stocks and crypto and all the rest right. of it there's still a lot of money pouring into art it really rises and falls like the the core the core of the art world the the real money and the real wealth and the real assets rises and rises with the wealth of the, the aggregate wealth of global billionaires, right? So, so long as global billionaires are getting richer, that only goes one way. That only goes one way. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, as long as, as long as they're doing well, the blue chip art, you know, the amount you'll pay for velazquez you know, is, will always just seem to go. One of the
2: Walmart heirs doesn't need to panic sell.
0: A right. painting for liquidity. Exactly. So, that, so the claims about art being a portfolio diversifier and being um, a vehicle for outperformance of whatever you want, real estate stocks, it's it's grounded in reality. No, it's grounded. Like that is
1: grounded in statistical, and bullshit.
0: Well, most people can't buy all these pieces of artwork. So you could not – it's not like a Vanguard 500. It would be really hard to approximate okay, no, no, that.
1: Yeah, okay. So number one, it's not investable. Right. But number two, there's no... I mean, yeah, there, there's no investable art index. So when people say that art has outperformed the S&P 500, they have to do a bunch of slightly dubious mathematics. and all Mental to gymnastics
0: this. to get and there. What,
1: and what they wind up doing, it, most of the time, not all the time, nearly most of the time, they wind up using this thing called the May Moses Index, um, which is owned by Sotheby's now. And the way the May Moses Index works is that it looks at repeat sales of artworks at auctions. So that if there's a painting that sold at Sotheby's yesterday, and then the same painting sold at Christie's 25 years ago, they can compare the price of that painting between those two data points, and then they aggregate any repeat sales that they can find in the market among paintings, and they can work out what the up and down trends are in the market. That's the May, May Moses Index. It sounds like... A relatively sensible way of doing things. What's the problem? There are two big problems. The first is that the auction houses are very picky about what they accept. If you turn up to Sotheby's with some random piece of shit painting that isn't that they're not gonna be able to sell, they won't put it in the auction. And more to the point, if it won't, or it, they'll say, well, "Well, we might put it in a day, day sale where you can get six hundred bucks for it," and you'll be like, "I don't, you know, I paid twenty thousand for it. Why would I even sell it for six hundred? I'll just hold on to it." So no one sells that. So all of the stuff that goes down never sells, never makes it into the index. Interesting. The stuff that does sell is the so stuff. So
0: survivorship that, bias.
1: Massive survivorship okay. bias. Okay. Yeah, and and the stuff that that, that does sell. Especially at the auction houses, this is, is generally the more the most hyped stuff of the moment. Compared to like where it might have sold, um, you know, ten years ago, it might be looking good, but it's just um, the auction houses and public auctions are such a small part of the total art market that you can't consider that to be representative at all. And we were talking about your good friend Scott Lynn at Masterworks. He says. On the record, very happily, that he will never su- buy or sell at auction. You know, it's just like the the round trip costs are too high. The, the amount you need to pay to the auction house is too high. Like he can't, he can't. Doesn't make sense for him to do that. Those, like the, 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 so the smart people, in the, the of private auctions. sales don't appear in these indices at all. Okay, and if everyone is selling at a loss privately, you, that never shows up in the in the indices. So, so the they, indices yeah. are
2: bullshit, but they're directionally right. No,
1: so so okay. So here's the thing. Look no, at
2: he's saying it's such a tiny slice No, no. no of but the I'm market. saying look
1: at look at the. Um, well, just
2: buy the winners. Look a, at the a, just top. Just buy the winners. Look at, at the, the top.
1: Um, look at the top twenty highest growing, grossing artists at auction over the past five years.
2: Does that list change a lot? It's like, yes. Oh, it's it like, does.
1: Compare like like that list to it's the
0: like you're talking about. Like, the, the, like compare the that
1: list to what to what it was twenty years ago. And I've done this exercise, and it's like. You look at the less than 20 years ago, and you know, you'll see like, I don't know, Peter Halley and Julian Schnabel, and Nerd um, Alert, you know, this guy's
2: dropping artist names,
1: (laughs) Saul Steinberg. You know, the Saul Steinberg from, um, from like New York, the New Yorker cover of the view from New York of the Hudson River. Like, that guy was actually. Briefly, at auction, one of the most collected artists at auction was like- in well, You're talking point. about
0: contemporary art. You're not talking about like
1: uh, old masters. So old masters, there aren't a lot that are on the market. There's no liquidity on them. They because they, all they're, they're all, they're nearly all in museums. And the yeah. ones that aren't in museums are in, you know, has, have been in the same family for 500 years. So, so, so it's very rare for those to- that, So you're that's, saying the
0: top-grossing contemporary artists, the index no, would look top, like just 10 years top ago. just the
1: top-grossing artists. Like one, one thing that has happened- Right, is that the, the top-grossing artists are much much younger and um, have the the art has been created much much more recently than ever used to be. Used to be that you'd go to a modern art sale at Sotheby's and most of the art was at least thirty or forty years old. Now you go to a modern art sale at Sotheby's and you can buy stuff that was painted three days ago. Yeah, because Soft.
0: the artist has a, a brand and has built a name for themselves while they're working. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, are NFTs art? Okay, why? <laughs> well, I mean, so like, 10, I don't think so either. But I, I just think they're ugly. But that's not a good answer. So, so the, answer? There's,
1: there's, two different ways to understand because the, the NFTs question. NFTs are ugly. They're all ugly. I mean, every it, one okay. Of them. So, so the first thing to say is like, an NFT is an arrow, right, which points to something on the internet, on you know, the yes. interplanetary file service or something, and, um, and the thing that it is pointing to. Is nearly always was well, not no. Sometimes, sometimes it's like an NBA top shot. You know, no one considers that to be art. Michael does. <laughs> um, Avid collector. But like, let's say it's done by someone who considers themselves to be an artist.
0: People. People.
1: Right. Fine. Like. That art is objectively terrible. That is, Agreed. Beeple makes really, really bad I art. I wouldn't and put
0: one of those f-ing things on my wall if, you,
1: if they paid me. If you look at the—there is an aesthetic to those kind—to what you find on OpenSea, and it's very digital and weird, you know, they, you, you can look at Beeple's and Bored Apes and Mutant Apes and packs, and you name it, all all these people who are standing, standing after this, and you can— pretty quickly you get a feel for the aesthetic. Yes. And the aesthetic is cheap and nasty and terrible, and there's no actual, like, aesthetic value in there. Right. So so insofar as there is any kind of aesthetic object, the aesthetic object is just, like, bad. Yeah. but <laughs> it's vid- um, like vi- Almost but, video but, but, game quality. But more to the point, like, the the NFT itself is not the aesthetic object. The NFT itself is some weird tradable token that is somehow...
0: Maybe connected to it. the aesthetic
1: yeah. object in some weird, like, way that no one really understands very well, um, and and is mostly just a speculative. This guy vehicle. doesn't
2: understand community.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the community. <laughs> you're leaving out. It's the community. So no. So so that's the thing, right? So like, consider the bored apes people don't really consider the Bored Apes to be art. They consider the apes to be a community. Status, status symbol. It's a status symbol, right. exactly. So like, the and what we, and I think one of the things that we have seen in the NFT world since the big Christie's auction of the Beeple is that like for a hot minute there, people thought, oh, NFT is, that's a way for artists to sell art digitally, you know?
0: Which sounded great to Which me. Which sounded
1: great for a hot, for a minute, and then very rapidly what you saw in the NFT world was 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 that community moving away from that paradigm and towards this, you know, this idea of collections, whether it was apes or rocks or penguins or whatever you have, you know? And and the and the word art basically just dropped out of the NFT lexicon right, pretty quickly.
0: Right. Yes. So they became more like collectibles, tokens to join a community. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me. It's like a backstage pass. The concert ended, but you hold on to the backstage pass because the artist is meaningful to you, or you had a great time, or you just happen to collect things as souvenirs. Yeah. I understand that. But, I just don't understand like, why but somebody the else is. Secondary market it. in
1: backstage right. buses is like, yeah. That's the that's the weird bit, right? There are some things that you get like bizarre secondary markets popping up and baseball cards seem to be like really hot right now for reasons I have no idea. And um, and one of the things we saw in twenty twenty one. Was a big or twenty twenty and twenty twenty one? Was this like really sharp rise in the value of Rolex watches?
0: Mm. Yes,
1: and you're like, okay, so I guess like suddenly like there's a community of Submariner lovers out there, and they like. They, well, they were,
0: let's assume they weren't melting them down, right?
1: Well, <laughs> you, no, they're not because the ones that are valuable are all steel. Yeah, and and then and that market is now yes going down, but like yeah, they're a little collectory crazes, but. Um, and so that's, you know, art collectors are collectors, you know. They're, and and so there is a little bit of that dynamic of wanting to identify the collector craze and wanting to buy the stuff that other people want to buy. But most art collectors aren't honestly like that. Most art collectors actually do want to like the art they buy, yeah, live they with look at the it. art they buy. Um, but, you know, no, you know. They want to hang out with those artists and support artists. You know, and that all of that kind of stuff is a much more real and physical form of community than than you find on you know, people in, that in go to uh, gallery service.
0: openings, people that right. that's that's a community, right? because it first of all, there's a there's a price to get in
1: right. and and yeah, if you want to go to, you know, the opening week of the Venice Biennale when the whole art world is in the same place at the same time, you know, those hotel rooms don't come cheap. Uh, enough of the
2: art.
0: Uh, Well, I want to ask one more art-related question. What would Warhol be doing in 2021, 2022? And what would Andy Warhol actually be doing right now? Because from whatever I know about him and what he did and why he was so important and the quote-unquote community around him, I feel like he would be perfectly at home in this world of crypto and NFTs and everybody's famous for 15 minutes. And he
1: would, he would hate it.
0: You think he would hate it. So he
1: loved it in the seven. So this is the thing. Andy Warhol was a contrarian. He was, he was deeply avant. He was a much more avant-garde artist than people give him credit for. Um, He Gave up an incredibly lucrative career as a commercial illustrator to make much, much less money making art that people hated. And when he first came out with the soup cans and the yeah, yeah. like people actually hated that. And they considered they called it Neo Dada and they thought it was incredibly nihilist and, and they hated it. Eventually, all that changed. Um. But when it changed and when people started, like, loving it and putting it on tote bags, that was when he said, oh, I'm just going to – I'm no longer a painter. I'm not going to do paintings anymore. I'm just going to do films. And he made unwatchable films that lasted for, you know, eight hours and were all projected on top of each other and, you know, were were just impossible to watch. Um, When New York entered a very rough patch economically in the 70s, he created this thing called business art he was you know because as everyone was becoming very holier than now and was like you know extolling the wonders of the abstract expressionists or whatever like he was like as a F- you to all of those people he's like i'm just gonna make art as business i will endorse anything i will sell anything if you want me to make your portrait i will make you a portrait for ten thousand dollars and i'm just going to do like I'm going to create a business and the business itself is going to be art. And the reason he did that at that time was because it was an incredibly contrarian thing to do. And everyone was like, how dare you bring money into art like this? How dare you financialize art like this? Art is So then he took it all the way. Art art is like a pure and ethereal thing. How dare you attach a dollar value to it? So because it was because it was offensive to so many people. That's why he did it. Okay. Now that art has a dollar value everywhere, now that everyone is playing that speculative game, he would hate it. He never wanted to do what everyone else was doing.
0: Okay. So I, I had it totally backwards, not knowing really anything about him other than what everyone else knows. I just, like, I'd See, the opportunism didn't seem to me as ironic as you were saying that it was.
1: I can, again, if I can like, plug a great book. The, Please. Um, the Blake Gopnik... Andy Warhol biography is very thick and it comes with a huge number of footnotes <laughs> but it is a it is the definitive biography of Warhol and you will really understand him if you if you read that.
0: You wrote about the billionaire class buying up sports teams in Europe and the US and you admitted somewhere in the piece that this is not your forte um <laughs> sports in general even even football or what we call soccer here um but like what it This, this to me, seems like it's on a parallel track with all the art stuff and and uh, just there being a lot of money available for billionaires to express there, themselves. There, there are certain paintings that are
1: true trophy assets. And, right. you know, if your name is Ken Griffin, you know, you really want that one painting, that one Jasper Johns flag, flag, you know, that is the true trophy. Um, and sports teams have become trophy assets for billionaires. And it's interesting to see that play out in the UK in particular, or in England in particular, I should say, because this is one area where the English gave up long ago on having any particular sort of, you know, we want our sports team owners to be English. Yeah. And so the. Who's bust, buying them? The Russians bust, and Americans? So it's mostly the Americans now. Okay. It was the Russians for a while, and there's a lot of like Middle Eastern um, sovereign wealth funds and that kind of stuff going in. But right now, it's mostly the Americans. The person who just bought um, Chelsea for $3 billion was American. And remember that Chelsea was famous for just being this black hole that Roman Abramovich would pour more and more money into. Like, Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea for however much he paid for it, and then spent, like, another billion dollars just, like, subsidizing the losses. So, you know, the net present value on any kind of DCF calculation of, like, how much Chelsea is worth is clearly negative. But yeah. Chelsea There's became...
2: Chelsea.
1: Chelsea. became the most expensive sports team ever sold in the history of the world for about three weeks before the Denver Broncos got sold. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the, you, you can't come... You can't back out that valuation... Um, in any sort of any way other than just
0: like- It's a, va- this is, a vanity purchase. But that's this the is thing. There's,
2: there's 30 teams in the NBA. That's it. There's only 30. And you can't have it, right? Unless you're willing to pay ludicrous sums. And it never makes sense financially.
1: Well, except for, so, so what's super interesting is that now you have two other things happening. One is that there's a bunch of billionaires who are- buying up multiple teams. It's not enough to own the Boston Red Sox. You also need to own Manchester United at the same time. And then the other thing is, that, of course, you know, um, hedge funds and private equity and the people who actually do want to make money are getting into it because they see line goes up, right? And they're like, I don't care if this loses money on a sort of cash flow basis for five years. As long as I have a thesis that there's always going to be a billionaire who wants to pay more money for it than... Yeah, well,
0: right when Bomber ba- bought um, the Clippers, everyone was like, I can't believe he paid, whatever he paid, $3 billion, $2 billion, I don't know. $2 billion, I think, for that I, one. Like, people chill. were like, oh, what is he doing? It's like, dude, he has like $40 billion. He doesn't give a shit what you think it's worth. He wants it. So this, I mean, so
1: this is where it gets really interesting, right? That, that when you get the billionaire acquisitions of sports teams, someone like Bomber buying the, the Clippers, they really are using like play money. Yeah. You know, they, they can find that in cash very easily. They can pay it. It doesn't affect their standard of living at all. They don't need to give up anything they love in order to buy it, right? And that's how everyone thought of Elon Musk's bid for Twitter, that he was like, I'm just going to buy this with play, play money. Yeah. Then it turned out that the amount he bid was actually much more than play money, even for him. He's the richest man in the world, but like he's not liquid. And if he needed to find this money, it wasn't going to be easy. And that's when he started getting second thoughts and buyer's remorse. But
0: the billionaires that bought – like the Warriors, I'm assuming they're profitable because they're multiple-year champions and you sell a lot of merch. You sell very high ticket prices. I've
1: never, I've never entirely – no one has ever been able to show me that there's any real correlation between winning championships and making money. Well, the TV,
0: so, the TV rights in some sports are shared across all the teams. But exactly. in other sports, they're not. So, for example, the Knicks own their own TV rights. Right, but that's got nothing to do with winning
1: championships.
0: Well, clearly. Not in New York. <laughs> but in some markets, if you do really well, the ticket prices can go up and the TV viewership goes up. Let's assume there's something to it. I don't know that there always is, but let's assume like The, the most to valuable
1: it. sports team in the world is the Dallas Cowboys, and they haven't won anything in living memory.
0: That's right. That's right. So, because in the NFL, the, the teams share the TV rights. So, explain to
1: me. Why is it that the Dallas Cowboys are worth like three times as much as some other NFL team if they just share the TV revenue? What makes the Cowboys and, and when they're not winning championships, what is it that makes them valuable?
0: Because there are doubt there are far flung Cowboys fans all over the world. There's something about that team that has a global fan base, and you couldn't say that necessarily about the Giants. Kansas City Chiefs. So how so how do the Cowboys monetize that fan base? Selling merch. It's like big numbers, it's like big numbers. Um, but their ticket price is higher. There's a lot of wealth in Dallas. You couldn't necessarily charge the same in Green Bay, even if Green Bay's a better team than Dallas, and they usually are. Um, there's something. Dallas is uh, one of those cosmopolitan. I, I will cities. say, like
1: I have been to one American football game in my life. It what was game at was it? Cowboy Stadium. It's not gr-
0: uh, how was it?
1: It was amazing. Yeah. It was. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was. I didn't realise how similar it was to like a rock show. Yes. Yeah. You know? yeah, it's it's very noisy. Yeah. There's the crescendos. Totally. It goes up, it goes down, there's everything is perfectly timed. There's the music, there's the It's a production. The crowd. Yeah. And 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 I I could totally understand how you could get caught up in that and really love it. Um but of course, me and the <laughs> <laughs> 70,000 other people who were in that stadium that yeah. day were a tiny minority of the people watching that game. That's right. Um, and honestly, like we could barely tell what was going on on the field compared to people watching it on TV who could really see what was going on. It's a, a terrible it's a experience different- in terms
2: of getting the, the sp- like football sucks. You can't really see what's going on. It's much better on TV.
0: Yeah. F- the football experience is much better uh, with Red Zone watching all the games at once. And they just show you the team that's about to score. And then they switch to the next game. And you don't even say, have to. I will say,
2: out of how many podcasts have we done so far on this show? 50-something? Yeah. This is the first time that we covered we got through one topic. And we've just gone. We, yeah, we, right? did, we did pretty We good. normally get through six topics. We're just rambling. We, we did pretty good, though. It's a good ramble. It's um, a good ramble. Actually,
0: uh, we're going to do favorites now.
2: It's also the first one that has uh, talked about sports and art.
0: Yeah, we did, we covered football. How and many Australia. topics did we
2: miss? How many topics did we miss in the? Po- it- I
0: don't know. There's a bunch of boring shit we didn't <laughs> get to this time. Six. We were, well, we were going to talk about uh, Goldman Sachs losing a billion dollars in at Marcus. Marcus, you probably have a you probably have a, a good take on that. Will they keep going, or will they at some point be like, turns out consumers aren't really that interested in us? It's, I mean. Right now,
1: I guess, you know, the interest rate situation, the like environment is making it a little bit more attractive yeah. to to play that game, so they'll stick around for a while. What they, yeah, how how the hell that do money? you lose
0: Yeah, how the hell do you lose a billion dollars on that? Are there commercials how is it even for possible? Marcus? I only watch streaming at this point. I wouldn't even know. No. There aren't. I don't think so. So, are they I giving mean, they're, away they're, too they're much some... on the teaser rate
2: maybe? There is no teaser rate. They pay like 60 basis points. There's no teaser. Are they losing money on that? No. No, that that Hiring people, I, yeah, a
0: billion really. Uh, one point. Uh, the consumer bank, known as Marcus, will lose more than one point two billion in twenty twenty two, according to the bank's internal projections. Bloomberg News reported. Wait, on wait, Tuesday. wait
2: were they lending to Three Hours Capital? <laughs> like
1: this is, but this is the crazy thing, right? They don't have a loan book.
0: It's a dramatic change oh, a from three years book. ago when David Solomon claimed, if Marcus quote were out in Silicon Valley and made twenty percent of the progress that we've made. We could get a lot of credit, and people would be throwing money at us to own a piece of this business. Nah. Uh, I mean, not yet. We're not the, at, not the at this whole. Point.
1: Con- the whole consumer banking thing became super hot for a while, and I never understood why everyone, you know, came out with a checking account with a debit card attached to it, which is very table stakes, and they're like, it's free. Okay, and they're,
2: you're they're, like, This great. is so table, this is so crowded. High yield savings, by the way, 1%, LOL. Is that Marcus's homepage? Yeah, automate your investing, see your personal loan options, credit cards. It's SoFi. Uh, it's SoFi. Uh,
1: but yeah. But it's but it's also, you know, Dave or Varo or Chime, Chime or like yeah. they're all basically the same product. Customer Varo,
0: acquisition in that space is so expensive. But
1: the, the, thing, the thing that right. Marcus and Varo have, that like Chime and Dave don't, is that they have actual banking licenses, they're actual banks. So they don't need to pay a huge amount. Uh, so they, they can actually start doing fractional reserve banking if they want to. right? Um, but yeah, the whole space seems massively overvalued. And uh, Nubank did a great like IPO and at the top of the bank, the big right one the in top. Brazil. And that's just been falling off a cliff ever since. Part
0: of the rationale behind Marcus at some point had to have been, we'll spin this off and it'll be a $100 billion standalone fintech giant. And that's obviously not going to happen, at least not in this cycle. Right. Looks like every other neobank. Looks like everyone. Uh, All right, let's do favorites. Felix, you have uh, Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. Tell me about this. Hmm. Why should we read it?
1: Alexandra Lang? So, um, number one, Alexandra Lang is just this amazing author. And she's done an amazing job of looking at the history of the mall, which now, like, we have to call the mall, right? It's not. The shopping mall mm. anymore, but like in the early days, it was the shopping mall, and the reason why these things made money is because there was this thing called the Gruen transfer, where people used to go shopping when they needed something, and then at some point, people went to the mall because they wanted to go to the mall, even if yeah. they didn't want to buy something, and then once they were in the mall, they wound up buying stuff, and there was, you know, the mallification of America, and and the, we used to
0: go to see we used to go to see girls. So when we were, exactly. That's when we were 14, thing. we didn't have driver's licenses. There was no internet. So we would get our parents to drop us off in groups of seven and eight young boys. And we had no money, but we didn't want to buy anything anyway. There were girls there. That was just how you did it. Yeah. And, the, and you grew up in, you know, early suburban 90s, Long Island
1: or wherever it was. Roosevelt and, Field. And that is, you know, as, as Alexandra really shows, you know, there is this human need, this really, really basic human need and desire to sort of hang out with other people for there to be some kind of a central square where people can go to and can see each other and can interact. So for the suburbs, and, that's and, the in mall. In the suburbs, like that never, the wall was the only thing, the only game yeah. in town. Yeah. And like as shopping has become increasingly digital, digital, like the mall has, I was just down at the South Street Seaport last night and yeah, you know, they have a big mall there, the PS 17, and they have a new mall jumping, cropping up right next door called the Tin House. And neither of them have a single shop. You know, it's all like food and experiences and, and have that you kind seen of thing. A,
0: have you seen a concert on the roof
1: at and Pier 17? And they have concerts on it's the roof. Cool. Yeah. It's Great it's it's really views.
0: Nice. Did you know that South Street Seaport is privately owned? Well, it's Howard Hughes, no? Yeah, it's the only privately owned neighborhood in Manhattan. Like, the land is owned by the corporation. Really? And Bill Ackman's on the board. So he owns a piece of Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> so um but yeah it's it's corporate south street seaport is corporately owned but i think the nypd have jurisdiction over it
1: oh yeah i'm pretty sure that if
0: you commit a crime in the south street seaport the nypd will have no compunction and doesn't have a private military uh policing it um all right so it's called meet me by the fountain you liked it it's great book good book okay michael what do you have for favorites
2: i'm shocked that sherry likes out the old man it's like it's like a little slow so that's my favorite is it yours also um i'll let it be yours. you watching this
1: is this a thing on the telly?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. It's
2: on... Uh, FX slash Hulu. Hulu.
0: Uh, it's Jeff Bridges. Would that change your mind? I think it's his only TV show he's ever done. Okay. So... And he's not playing older Big Lebowski. It's like... <laughs> it's it's very different. I don't know. I love him. I can pretty it's, much yeah, watch yeah. so, last le- and le- But well, you know who else is in it? Lithgow. Who's even better? John Lithgow. Yeah. Legend. So these are... Two great actors, and it's a really suspenseful. Uh, we're on episode three, mm-hmm. and I think this yeah. four out.
2: I was, um, I was on the train late the other night, and I had nothing to watch, and I saw Reservoir Dogs was on Netflix. I haven't seen that in like I don't know a while, and I just watched like the first ten minutes. Like holy shit, what a movie! Yeah, oh my god, still
0: watchable. Like first ten minutes, the, are great. the first ten minutes is I don't like the I don't tip scene, you yeah. know, and then goes right into the aftermath of the robbery. Such a good movie, like, immediately. Yeah, good. Good movie. Um, you Tarantino guy or not really? Yeah, you are. Yeah,
1: okay. no, we we did um, Jackie Brown recently on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. And okay, can I ask you about really, that. Really, really
0: holds up. So you and I did an episode of Slate Money we Goes did to the Wall Movies. Street, right? We did we did Wall Street. Yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah. So how often are you doing those? And you're going away from just Wall Street movies. You're doing like all movies.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, we're not doing. We're, we're, uh, we'll see. Why but, Jackie Brown? Um we have Ben Horowitzon. Mm. Um and I thought he would be a very interesting person to talk about Jackie Brown. And Why? he was. Because he he grew up basically around Black Panthers and um knows the neighborhood really well, knows the shopping mall where uh, oh, I've it in the shopping I, mall. I think he that actually so good. I think he actually saw Jackie Brown when it came out in that shopping mall.
0: People hated that movie when it first came out because it wasn't Pulp Fiction.
2: It's not Pulp Fiction.
1: But it's, it's, has it's it aged so well? It's yeah. aged unbelievably so I well. I saw yeah. that.
2: That was my, the only Tarantino movie that I hadn't seen. And I saw it a year ago. And it was, it was not like – it's not Kill Bill or whatever, but it's, it's good. It, and it definitely ages well. It,
1: it's, it's like it's his most grown-up
0: movie. Mm. Um, and Because it's not
2: it's about De Niro. For- it's
0: about Robert Foster. Like it's really about that character. It's also
1: like, but but yeah, I mean, De Niro, De Niro has, a, good. has a supporting role, but he's very good. It's the last time that De Niro De Niro actually acts well, and he's, understa-
0: and he's understated. Yeah, very. In the, yeah. he's not playing Robert De Niro. Right. Okay. Um. What? So, but that's not that's not the best Tarantino movie. Like, <laughs> and
2: *Glorious Bastards* is. You think it's sorry? That's my
1: favorite. I, uh, my my unpopular opinion. Is the best Tarantino movie is true romance. Yes. Well, fine, but that's Tony Scott.
0: But he doesn't have the director credit. Yeah. But you would you would say. I mean that's that's right that up movie. there. Yeah, it's
2: amazing. amazing. I think
0: I think that's one of his most rewatchable movies. Like if I if I pass him by Pulp Fiction, I,
2: I don't I can't get I the can't it. The Dennis Hopper myself. Christopher Walken scene is like a top ten scene.
0: So
1: okay, you want my little yeah, nerdy do. nerdy film dive into that into that scene. Duncan wants it. Duncan's a film guy. <laughs> he wants it bad. Yeah. Okay. So um Oh God! I'm gonna have to make sure he's got the thing
2: wrapped around his hand as he's talking.
1: (laughs) So no, so so that that scene um, is played as a love scene between the two of them. Yeah. What you know how who I work for between Dennis Walker, Dennis Up and Christopher Walken, right? Yeah. And the music that plays while Dennis Hopper is making that final like his he knows it's his final monologue, that it's the last thing he's gonna say before he gets shot to death.
0: You know what? I will take one of those Chesterfields yes. after all. Yes 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 yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 yes,
1: yes, yes. That one. Yeah. Um, the music playing is the flower duet from Lacme by Delib. This very, very la, la 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 this like very like flowery... Oh my God, I could hear it. um love duet by a very flowery French composer. Um, and it's the same music that British Airways used to use in all of its ads um, for many, many years, which were also directed by Tony Scott. And... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> and and Tony Scott just goes back to Do this... You need, you need a minute? You
0: okay? <laughs> I didn't know any of this.
1: Okay. And, and so basically... The way that scene works is that it's he he shoots it. If you look at the way that the the camera goes back and forth between the two men, the zooming in, the listen to the music, listen to the framing. If you watch that scene um, on with, mushrooms, like with this, with with only listening to the music and not listening to any of the dialogue, um, yeah. without like realizing that someone's tied to a chair and is all bloodied up, but it's like it is it is. Framed and structured and shot and has all of the music and everything of a complete
0: love duet. Now, why would he do that? Because he said, "I have two of the best actors ever yeah. at my at my disposal, and I want them to. I want to I want to do it this way." What happens is is that Dennis Harper's character like
1: forms this like incredibly intimate connection with Christopher Walken's character by. Coming out with this monologue and And the history of Sicilians, he 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 identifies him and he manages to read. And then what Walken says at the end is like some I can't remember what the line is, but he says something along the lines of like, "No one has ever said anything like that to me before." You know, it's like you have touched me. Like he's like, I what he says is like, "I'm going to kill you myself." I've never like I always get like my henchmen to kill you, but I'm gonna because of yeah, what you a, just told me, I'm going to another do movie it where it's
0: like finally some a man worth killing, like right. something like that. What? Yeah, yeah, it's something to that effect. Like this guy was worth my time killing, right? What uh, a movie! What, what a, go <laughs> now I gotta go watch now I gotta watch again? Felix, you had fun today? I did. It yes. was awesome. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna start recording now. We're gonna do it for real <laughs> now that you're all warmed up. Uh, you're laughing, but you're not sure. No, a hundred percent. This was a lot of fun for us. Um, I so appreciate you coming by. It's been great. I want to come back on the Slate Movie Podcast. Come back on the Slate Movie Podcast. What, are you doing any more stuff that's like red meat for me? you going to do Boiler Room or are you going to do uh, Margin Call? or You've probably done all those, right?
1: You know, I'm trying to remember if we... I think, I think we it. were
0: going to do Boiler
1: Room and then didn't. So oh. maybe... Come back to do boiler room. You can't do it with anybody but me. Okay, we'll do boiler room with you. I'm gonna um, give you inside shit from
0: that, the can, making of that movie. You can that,
1: explain why Ben Affleck <laughs> has never in scene with anyone else. I
2: still never understood the 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 next the building next door, the empty building with all the phones on the floor. What was that?
0: I'll tell you, right. but not on this podcast. We're gonna do that on Felix's <laughs> yes, podcast. It's gonna happen on my uh, podcast. All right, where can so people can find you, um, your stuff for Axios? Yeah, there's the, an Axios, email with
1: that. Axios Business Suite. Just go to Axios.com and sign up for. Any of the business newsletters—they're all fantastic. Axios Markets also comes free with Axios Macro by the great Neil Owen um, and Axios Closer. And yeah, I my one is on Saturdays. I have the Saturday um, episode—I guess you could call it. Yeah. Of Axios Markets. I never
0: miss it. And Slate Money is when does that drop? And that's also Saturdays. It's every Saturday it yeah. comes out. Okay, so check out Slate Money to hear from Felix. And sign up at Axios.com for the email blast, which I never miss. I think you're one of the best financial writers uh, ever. <laughs> that that I've, I've been reading your stuff for like 11, 12 years. It's been a and minute. Every time I read something that you've that you've written, it always makes me think about things in a way that maybe I haven't. So keep up the great work. Thank and you. Thanks for coming and I hope,
1: I hope you get into like buying up. It's good for
0: you. Oh, well, I don't have the money yet. I can only do fractional, but <laughs> we can all we can all dream. Just don't do that. Nicole, you subbed in for John today. I think good you job, did, Nicole. Great. did you to Jeff yes. Did you learn some stuff today? Yeah. Duncan, did you learn anything today? Yeah, you did, right?
2: Yeah, I've got to go watch True Romance. I've actually never seen it.
0: What? It's
2: the only Tarantino I think
0: I've never seen. How are you calling yourself a film person if you Duncan. No, I don't romance? know? I
2: just haven't seen it.
0: Oh, oh my man. god, you're so you're, lucky.
2: I'm watching Sam- Seven Samurai right now, so you know I'm. You're I'm into a true. So
0: now, so now you're watching Tarantino source material. Yeah. Basically, um, all right. Great job today. Thanks for coming through. Do we have any announcements to make before we leave? I think we're good. Like and subscribe already. Would you please? All right, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.